16, verse number 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, I didn't really know what to title this. I know that for a number of weeks we've been looking at Galatians, and I will return to that. But uh, th- this, this could be uh, entitled How to Resist Depression see? or Cure for Sorrow. The, the reason I say that is we have a culture today where there is a lot of excessive sorrow to the point that we see in one particular county in our state that I'm thinking of where they have the highest suicide rate. I think just about every six to nine months, there's somebody that commits suicide. Why do people do that? What's the reason behind that? Possibly we'll be able to say some things to to show you that, but more than anything else, to help you see how to battle that when you're facing that, because all of us have to deal with that. This isn't uh, this isn't something that just comes to one person. Everybody has to wrestle with this and resist it, and we'll we'll show you how. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening to be able to look into the scripture. We're happy that your word provides solutions. And Lord, you've given us the victory through your son. And we're so happy that at Calvary, he pointed the way to a triumphant lifestyle for each one of us. So Lord, as we hear the word of the Lord tonight, make us stronger. Let us believe that we can conquer anything the adversary throws against us because the Bible teaches no weapon formed against us can prosper. We love you and praise you in Jesus name. Everyone said, amen, amen. Psalm 16 is written by King David. It is one of those psalms where he goes out of his way to emphasize the greatness and the mightiness of God. You will notice in verse 1, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee I put my trust. Now He knows that if his life is going to be preserved, God has to do it. God's able to keep us in any test, any trial, any uh, situation or period of tribulation that we pass through. The Lord is able to preserve us. That means hold us intact. He can keep us together. You don't have to fall apart. You do not have to have a nervous breakdown. God is able to keep you. So he says in that final sentence of verse one, it is in you, Lord, that I put my trust. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't trust in the arm of the flesh. Don't put your trust in a friend. I would dare say don't even put your trust and reliance in the methods that this culture creates. Put your trust in God. He is reliable. He's a pillar that you can lean on. Millions of others have leaned on him and found that he's strong in every generation. He goes on to say in verse four, though, speaking about people who disobey God, their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. Now, it's the first sentence that I'm interested in, and that is where he talks about the multiplication of sorrows. It's one thing to have one sorrow. It's another thing to have these multiplied in your life. And when you have sorrow upon sorrow, one grief upon another grief, one difficulty upon another difficulty, it's at that point where you feel like all of the pressure is pushing you down. 
And that kind of pressure, we can call it oppression, we can call it suppression, repression, whatever you want to call it. But any kind of pressure that comes into your life that is not designed to produce the character of Jesus Christ in your life, it is something you have to resist, something you have to fight. And the way you're going to do that, you're going to do that in your mind, because very often your emotions are attached to your thoughts. The scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you sit there tonight and you think about everything that people have done in wronging you, I promise you, you'll get angry. And if you meditate on it long enough, you'll become bitter. But if you turn that around and you bring your thoughts captive, and then you begin to do like the old hymn says, count your many blessings, then you'll find that your attitude will change. And your emotions are going to go in the exact same direction. So David in verse 11 gives us a a very precise formula, but he tells us something about the character of God. He says, the Lord will show me the path of life. That indicates there is a path of life. There's also a path of death. You can choose which path you want to walk on. But if the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter, as the scripture teaches, then I should desire to put footprints on the path of life because that's the one that's growing brighter. When I lived in Okinawa, Japan, I was surprised that the Shintoists actually had a a temple where you went in and prayed to die. Can you imagine? Can you imagine wanting to pray to your ancestors or pray to a god Because you want to die. Why would they want to die? Hopelessness. Unhappy with their life. Unhappy with their family. Unhappy with the circumstances of their their life. Now you can change a lot of things. There's some things you can't change. But the one thing you can change is your attitude. You can change that every day of the week. Thou will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. So in the presence of God we receive Something that's better than what the disobedient ones receive in verse 4. There's the multiplication of sorrows for them. But for us in verse 11, if we're in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. Scripture says wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there in the midst. So for me, whenever I gather with the saints of God, that is a joyful time for me. Because I realize Christians are the happiest people on the planet. These are the people that know God. These are the people that have an intimate, personal relationship with God. If I walked into a saloon and sat down at the bar with a bunch of guys or gals who just got off work, I guarantee you there would be no fellowship between me and them. And I promise you the conversation would be unlike any kind of conversation we have in here. So in that presence, there might be merriment and laughter but there's never going to be the kind of joy that God can provide. Nehemiah says it this way. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Not the joy of the world. The joy of the Lord. The joy you get from listening to a comedian is not the same kind of joy you'll get from being in the presence of God. In God's presence, there is a healing power. And there is something that works inside of you that makes you healthy, as the scripture teaches. I can show you this. We're already in Psalm 17. Go to the next book, which is Proverbs. And let's look then 
at Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. Notice verse number 22. A merry heart, a merry heart will kill you. No, it doesn't say that at all, does it? No. Do good like a medicine. Proverbs 17, 22. It does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So if, if I'm content and I'm happy in God, then somehow supernaturally, because this is not anything somebody can write out in a prescription or even explain to you in writing to you a letter. But I can tell you that in your relationship with God, since God is the one that forms the joy of, of your heart and he's the joy of your, your, your soul, that joy releases in you something that'll make you better and heal a broken heart when you're grieving. The joy of the Lord will do that. Now, I know this operates in the uh, natural world, and people have picked up on that principle, because you can go to some of these children hospitals around the world where the little kids have cancer or some kind of affliction, and they will typically have different adults coming in throughout the day who may be dressed like clowns and other things like that, trying to get them to laugh. Because they understand that if you have happy children, that's a whole lot better for them. But here's what the scripture says in verse 22 again. A merry heart does good like a medicine. Now we've all in here taken medicine at some time or another. And we have trust and faith in medicine. I know it because if you didn't, you wouldn't go to the doctor. And if you didn't, you wouldn't take what he or she prescribes. I've seen people where they've, they've said they've been in pain or maybe uh, had a headache or something was going on and it was bothering them a whole lot, but if they could just get to that bare aspirin bottle. And then they take that, 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 that bare aspirin as, as much as they're hurting, then as soon as they take that, put that in their mouth, and then they drink that with some water and it goes down, and then like 15 seconds later, they're doing like this. Oh, I just, okay, I mean, that, that's rapid release. Okay, that's rapid release, but here's my point. If a merry heart works like a medicine, then there must be things in our life that need to be cured. And one of the things that, that we need to fight against is that spirit of oppression that the devil brings, that repressive, sad, sorrowful spirit that comes to push us down so that we can hardly lift our eyes with happiness in our face. And that's why the scripture says this, this merry heart works. I, I think it's better for you, when you find yourself in this kind of battle and struggle, it's better for you to, to quickly get on the phone with or get around some people that make you smile, rather than calling people that make you mad. Yeah, because that, that'll put you in a worse condition than you were in before you saw them. Well, look at Proverbs 15 and look at verse number 13. A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. See, you'll wear it on your face because it's on the inside. Just like the scripture says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When there's an abundance of joy inside of a person, it's going to manifest in their countenance 
and in the way they conduct themselves. And then there's another scripture that even tells us that he that has a merry heart, or it says a merry heart is like a continual feast. Now you know as well as I do, some of the happiest people you meet are people that are eating. And people that have food in front of them, and some of the some of the most irritable people you have met are those that are hungry and can't wait for the food to get ready. So joy is something that produces in us a curative for us, but at the same time, it also keeps us strong. Now, God wants us to resist a broken spirit, a sorrowful spirit. Where does this come from? Now, let's go back to Genesis now. Chapter 3, we'll look at several things here. Genesis 3 gives us the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and where they commit sin. Now, it's interesting to me that from Genesis 3 throughout the rest of the Bible, we're having to deal with this whole issue of sin. Have you ever thought about that? If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, your Bible would only be two chapters long. But because of their sin... We've got all of this other stuff that we have to deal with. And once they were caught in their sin, notice what the Lord says in chapter 3, verse 16 to Eve. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Okay, well, again, sorrow can be multiplied. It can be more than one is what I'm saying. But notice how sorrow is connected with their transgression. There was no sorrow before Adam and Eve sinned. Just like there was no fear in the world before Adam and Eve sinned. Because of their iniquity, it released into the world all of these things like fear, shame, sorrow, murder, and these things that we have written about in the book of Genesis. So here is what I'm getting at. In this world, there are things that produce sorrow. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you hear about earthquakes and famines and pestilences, he said, do not be surprised. These are the beginning of sorrows. So we need to understand that when earthquakes take place in different places and and hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff come, none of these things are ever going to produce sorrow or happiness, I should say, never going to produce happiness in anyone's life. Sorrow. What does death bring with it? Sorrow. But even Paul said, when people pass away, we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. We know when a Christian passes away, we shall see them again. Well, in connection with this verse, then you say, Pastor, what about the verse that says the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it? Because I just read here where it says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. Well, he said that to Eve because of her sin. I don't want you to get the impression that I'm saying to you today that the reason you 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 face or fight uh, depression or sadness or sorrow is because of your sin. I want you to know that the scripture teaches that the devil comes to steal, to kill and destroy. And Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, about how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who went about doing good and healing all of those that were oppressed of the devil. So it's the devil who comes to bring this kind of oppression. Why would anyone 
want to take a shotgun and take their life? Why would anyone want to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and take a dive off the side? Why would anyone want to sit in a car and then turn the car on with the garage door down, inhale all of those fumes, and die? It is because people get themselves into a situation or they are in a situation where they do not see a way out. And once a person thinks it's hopeless, and once the clouds of despair loom so low that they are not capable of looking beyond that to see where the light of the Lord shines through, it's at that point where the devil is taking advantage of them. He starts whispering in their ears saying, you know, life would be a whole lot better for your kids and for your spouse and for everybody else around here if you just went on and left here. And if people sit there and listen to that voice or those voices over and over again and they don't resist them, then pretty soon they find themselves acting out what they're hearing. Now, you see, murderers do this all the time. They'll get in some kind of interview and then they'll tell you, well, I heard a voice telling me how to go kill somebody or how to do this. Because no one ever taught them that everything that enters into your head, you don't have to do or say. Or or tweet. Maybe we ought to tell our president that sometimes. You, know, you don't have to tweet everything, even though we may be thinking it. But, but here, here's the point. As a Christian... We need to be strong enough to recognize that when sorrow and excessive sorrow is coming to us and it's abiding and it is staying, that we have to resist it. Now let's look at an example. Let's go to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 30, 1 Samuel 30. Notice this will be a very bad season for David. This is what we would call a bad day. David and his men are just coming back from wanting to be in battle, but the king told them, you've got to leave because my generals no longer trust you. So in chapter 30, verse 1, David and his men were come to Ziklag. That's his home base where his family and everybody was at. And it says the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and took the women captive. And they that were therein, they didn't kill anybody, either great or small, that's to say old or young, but carried them away. So David and his men came to the city, saw it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. David and the people that were with, with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And then you can see it in verse 5, David's two wives were taken captive. In verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of the people was grieved. Now, these were people that loved David. They trusted David. They knew that David had a relationship with God. But now, because they have followed David, they have entered into trouble. And now they're angry at David. And so their attitude towards David has changed because we've lost our family, we've lost our property, and the city is burned down. How would you like if you went away on a little vacation and you came back here to our little town right here and everything was on fire and you'd lost everything and your family members had been taken? You would not be a happy camper. And you would even be angry with the leader 
if you had left and gone 20 miles to another town and come back and everything was destroyed because now you're saying, had I not gone with you, maybe I could have been here to fight for my wife and my kids. So sometimes people pass through situations where they feel like their ziklag is burning. If you've ever come to a situation like that where it just seems like those things that are precious and important to you have all just come to nothing, then you know what it is to move from grief to distress. The people were greatly distressed. And when someone is distressed, that is to say that there's a lot of concern, a lot of anxiety, and there's a lot of worry. I would be frantic if I came home and my house was burned down and my wife had been taken captive somewhere. Yeah. And you think of hundreds of people that are now missing. Well, there are a lot of people that serve Christ, the son of David, and because they follow the Lord, they have found themselves in circumstances that are not always nice and easy. Now, just a few days ago, you probably heard about the young man that went over there to that island over there by India. And I saw where one of the news reporters were reading some of his diary, and he said something to the effect of, some of you may think I'm crazy because I want to go to these unreached people and tell them about Jesus Christ. Okay, so he goes there, they shoot him with arrows, and they kill him, and they bury him. And then, of course, people say, well, I can't, I just don't understand why he just wouldn't leave them people alone and let them, let them have their own culture. Why he's, why does he have to go over there and try to tell them about his faith? Because Jesus said go. That's why. And what happened to him has been the story of what has happened throughout the church history. People going to people groups, preaching to cannibals, who after they kill you, they eat you. Going to preach to people who are, who are fierce, people that will drink your blood after they've killed you. And folks say, well, I, I still don't understand. You can't understand if you haven't heard the word go inside your heart and your mind. And that young man will never be understood by people who have no grasp of the missionary uh, the missionary commandment that Jesus gave in the scriptures. But for us who understand it, we say the Lord has received another one into his kingdom. You know, the tough thing about being the first one to break through to a particular tribe or people is that usually the one who's the, the path breaker or the trailblazer, that's usually the one that goes through the most hardships and has to deal with the most difficulties. If you've got 50 of you and you've got to march through the Brazilian jungles or something like that, if you're the one up front with a machete and you've got to clear the path, I can promise you, you're going to be the one that's going to be doing the bulk of the work and everybody else is just going to be walking in the pathway of what, what you've done. You're going to exert the most amount of energy. And these individuals who killed this young man you're dealing with folks that even the government of the country didn't want to do anything about. They probably don't even have any idea they did anything wrong. See? That's what we're saying. But but here's the thing. Let's imagine, though, the young man who's now deceased, let's imagine that he comes from a family or has some friends who say something like this. Had he not been following Jesus, I'd still have him with me. See? That's that's the kind of distress, that's the kind of anger 
that people developed towards God, this is what happened with David. The people that loved him at one time have now turned in their attitude towards him because their circumstances change. And we do not want you to be like that when it comes to God. Just because something bad happens, your attitude towards God should not change. It shouldn't. Because the character of God is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He reigns on the just as well as on the unjust. This body belongs to him. It was bought with a price redeemed by his blood. He can feed it. He can starve it. He could clothe it. He could keep it naked if he wanted to. It belongs to him. And when you realize that, it changes everything about how you conduct yourself as a follower of God. So in the circumstances where people want David dead... David doesn't crawl in a corner and in a fetal position and pull his knees up to his chest and start crying. And he, he doesn't say, God, I can't understand how you let this happen to me and let this happen to the people. Look at the last sentence of verse number six there in first Samuel 30. It says, and but David, but that's the conjunction. That means he's about to do something totally different than what we've been reading about before. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Sometimes you have to do that yourself. You can't wait for a friend to encourage you. You can't wait for a pastor to encourage you. A pastor can't wait for the sheep to encourage him or her. You have to do this for yourself. Go off on your own, sit down in a chair, go in your car and drive, but go somewhere and encourage yourself. Make yourself strong. Think about what the word encourage means in English. You know, fortify yourself. Put yourself in a position where you'll be stronger and courageous. Ready to face the battle and face the trial that is before you. How do you encourage yourself? Well, here's what you can do. Number one, get away from all the people that are saying they want you dead. That's the first thing. If everybody's standing around you saying stuff like, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, Job's wife, that, that kind of a thing. If everybody's saying they, they don't like you and they can't stand you, you, you can't make people like you who are hurting. Okay? Grieving people are very difficult to reach because they are focusing on their pain and what they lost. I mean, there's no reason to get angry with them. But it is to know that if, if you're going to lead and you're going to be strong, then you can't allow what's in them to get in you. Because you can become bitter like them. And pretty soon you'll be talking the same way they're talking. So David encouraged himself in the Lord. Well, I've had, I've had periods where sometimes I'll wake up and suddenly start thinking about all the obligations and responsibilities that I have, and then think about being out here in Nebraska, in these little towns, and I, I'm telling you, for a few hours, I go into a depression. I, oh, my goodness. How, oh, Lord, how are we, how are we ever going to help these folks, how are we ever going to get this done? How is this ever going to be accomplished? God, how will you ever 
do such and such. Well, it's it, it's during those periods, of course, when I, when I'm in that kind of a sour and foul mood, Tiffany can't be found. She avoids me like I have the plague. But you know, the answer for me is to just go somewhere, get along, grab my Bible, start reading this book, and encourage myself in God. I I will start thinking about things that God has done for me in the past that were supernatural, things that could not have occurred had he not intervened. That's how I start encouraging myself. And one time, Tiffany and I were doing that going down the road. We just, she took a, a notepad out and we just started, we said, Let, let's start from the time we got to Nebraska. Everything we can think of that God has done for us that we know was supernatural. And by the time we got finished looking at that, she wrote on the front and wrote on the back and just kept on writing we, we could only rejoice in how wonderful God is. That's important. You have to encourage yourself in the Lord. Once you remove God from the picture, then the only person to look at is yourself. And once you're the only person there to look at, then you begin to believe you are your own God, and that certainly is a discouraging sight and a discouraging thought. So we have to think about God. Well, let's go, let's go over to John Chapter 20, quickly. Gospel of John. You have to encourage yourself in the Lord. John chapter 20. Jesus has died. The resurrection has occurred. The disciples have come to the tomb only to find it empty. And in John 20 verse 11, it says Mary is standing outside the sepulcher weeping. Now, the previous verse says, then the disciples went away again unto their own home. So they they didn't know where Jesus was at, but they didn't decide that they were going to stick around the tomb to see if he would come back. They just went on back home. But Mary, she, she could not leave the place where she last saw the body. And she was tied to that, emotionally tied to that place. And that's why she's crying. Now, she's not standing there at the tomb having a conversation with Christ as the deceased person. You know, sometimes people will tell you, you know, if you, if you really want to find some healing when, when you're, you're sad and sorrowful and it's about someone who's passed away, then just, you know, go to the, go to the cemetery and just kind of talk to them and just unburden your heart. Listen, they can't hear you. Okay? They can't hear you. And I, I think it's beautiful that on Decoration Day, we take flowers out and beautify the grave sites and we put the flags up and things like that. But we still need to know that the deceased cannot smell the flowers and they don't see the flags. OK, so we're not out there because this is some ritual that we need to do to honor uh, them in the sense that that they can hear and see us. We do that to honor a memory. That's what it's about, to honor a memory. So in this instance, the key then is to talk to God. Remember, God is the one that heals us and helps us. When my mother lost her mother, my grandmother, uh, I just didn't know. I thought the world was going to come apart because they were so close. And I had been overseas 
And during that period of time, I was in the Arab country and, and I had so contextualized myself in that culture that I was dressing like the Arabs and had long sideburns and a long beard coming down here. And I was wearing one of those kafias on my head. And, and so I came home like that. And, and my mom just couldn't handle this. So we, we get to the, the funeral. And so my mom's up here. The casket is there. Grandma's in the casket. My oldest brother is there. My next oldest brother. And then hear me, the baby, and then other folks in the family. And my poor mother, she, she'd look up there, that open casket, and then she'd just start crying because her her mother was in there. And then she'd turn and then look at me and even cry harder. Okay. <laughs> she thought, she thought, I, she thought I was just changing. I had to let her know I'm, I'm just over there, just fitting in so that I can minister the gospel and reach them and, and everything like that. But in ministering to her, I had to let her know as I was getting on the plane heading, heading, heading back over there. When you go to the grave, you need to know grandma's with the king. You don't need to converse with her. You need to converse with God. He's the one that heals the broken hearts. That's the key. Anything that needs to be said now, say to the Lord. So verse 11. Weeping, she wept, she stooped down, she looked into the sepulcher, and she saw two angels. Now we have no indication that earlier in this chapter when she looked into the sepulcher that she saw any angels. But on this occasion she did. And here is how God will start working to bring us out of our grief. He gives us a new vision. He helps us to see things that we've never seen before or things that may have been there and may have been apparent, but we overlooked. Two angels, one at the head, one at Jesus' feet, and they said, woman, why are you crying? Now, you would have thought, okay, goodness, I mean, you're an angel. You you ought to know this. I'm crying because I don't know where Christ is. And so she told them, she said, look, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. She is under no impression that he's alive. She thinks somebody has absconded with the body. Somebody's taken <laughs> grave snatchers. That's what she's thinking. Somebody somewhere has taken the body and they're trying to keep us disciples from getting close to, to him. And when she had said that, she turned and Jesus See, she saw Jesus, but didn't know it was him. That's the beauty of this. She backs away, turns and looks. But Jesus looks different now because the last time she saw Jesus, he had a crown of thorns, a bloody brow, a bruised and swollen face. And then when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were preparing the body for burial, they cleaned him up, but he still didn't look like the same Jesus they used to have meals with him sitting at the table. It bludgeoned his back, hurt him. So in first instance, she didn't recognize who who he was. And you know, you, you've had that occasion in your life. Maybe you've gone to an old class reunion or maybe run into somebody you hadn't seen in decades. And, you know, your first glance at them, you don't even recognize them. But then when you start having a conversation, then you realize immediately who it is you're talking to. Mm-hmm. 
So the scripture says, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And, and she thought he was the caretaker. This is the gardener out here. She said, if you could just tell me where you've taken them, I, I, I'll be happy to come and get them. And then Jesus called her name and said, Mary, and instantly she knew it. See? It's like that song says, nobody can call your name, mention your name like Jesus. He has a way of getting your attention. Well, here's the thing. The disciples later on, it says the disciples were all locked in a room because they were afraid of the Jews. And they were they were under the impression that the Jews would think they stole the body. So they were locked in a room. Jesus came and stood in their midst. And the scripture says, then they were glad when they saw the Lord. So when she realized that this was Jesus, do you think she was happy? I bet she, yeah, you know she was. That's why she jumped down there and grabbed him and tried to hold on to him. He said, let me go. The, the, the reason for this is the man or woman who gets a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be a person who will experience joy and happiness and peace. That takes us back to why when we minister to people who are wrestling with suicide, we got to get them a glimpse of the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. Because a hopelessness would lead a person to believe that there's no exit from all of their problems. And when we're battling, when we're battling depression and we're battling grief, what we need is a fresh vision of the Lord. See? A little prayer can help. Sometimes just reading over scriptures you've seen before, Spirit of God can bring things to your mind and, and illuminate scriptures that you've never seen before. Sometimes it's just spending time with someone. Sometimes just listening to a, a message on TV or radio on a CD, whatever it is. But, but God has a way of bringing to you a fresh vision so that in that vision, you'll recognize that the fullness of joy is coming to you. Let me give you one other thing, and let's go over to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians ten. I realize that every time I get up to minister, everybody hears what I'm saying in different ways. Because everybody is going to receive what a minister is teaching in accordance with where they are in their own individual life. So if somebody is in a peaceful period, they'll receive it that way. If somebody else feels like they're in the middle of spiritual warfare, somebody else may be having marital problems, somebody else may be having difficulties with kids, somebody else may be single, whatever is going on, everybody hears it on a different level. And this is how the adversary tries to come in. As the scripture says, he's looking for that word that's been sown and he tries to steal it from that heart before it could ever take root. Now, Second Corinthians 10, notice verse number three. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh. So we are involved with fighting. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says the Lord is a warrior. And so are you. You are a soldier. Scripture teaches when Paul talks to Timothy. So we don't war after the flesh. That is to say, we're not using spears and bows and arrows and knives and things like that. We're doing spiritual things in verse four. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. See, 
but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now he's going to tell us what these strongholds are now and how to do it. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The primary responsibility of the Christian is to study to show yourself approved unto God. If you learn what is the knowledge of God, what is true, what is certain, what is factual, if you come to know what is right, then you'll be able to differentiate between what is unholy, what is wrong, what is sinful. And when the adversary comes to you and he tries to implant thoughts in your head that can lead to sin or thoughts in your head that can lead to your sorrow, then you change your mind. How do I cast down imagination? I change my mind. No two thoughts can occupy the same place at the same time. So I change my mind rather than focusing on something that's bringing me into bondage. I begin to think about things that are pure, holy, lovely, a good report. Paul says that in Philippians. So here here's where the believers battle is. Because when we leave this evening and we go to our respective places, you're not going to be able to get into my head and I'm not going to be able to get into yours. But all week long, we're going to have our own individual battles that we're going to have to face. And when the adversary is pushing fear at you, trying to get you to be filled with anxiety, thinking, well, it's coming back on you again, or you're never going to be happy in life. You're always going to have this problem or that problem. You have to resist that and begin to think about the knowledge of God. Remember, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and addeth no sorrow with it. Now, the blessing of the Lord, it can be, but it's certainly not entirely connected with money. You know what the blessing of the Lord does in your life? It brings joy, yeah, happiness, peace, tranquility. So cast down imagination. This, this, this is how you, you, are, you are to fight. Uh, this means that sometimes you've got to turn the channel on what you're watching. Okay? Yeah. So, sometimes you've got to turn off what you're listening to on the radio. Because some of what people are saying is designed, maybe not by them, but certainly by the adversary, is designed to exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Why do I want to listen to someone mock my faith and my love for God? See? I, I, I don't want uh, to, to hear that. The second part of verse 5. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So you have the ability to take charge of your thinking if you want to. If you want to. Now you... You know what what happens when people enter into what they call schizophrenia? And and they have a display of many personalities. You're dealing with a lot of thinking processes in that person. Certainly, if we talk about the madman of Gadara, we can talk about demon possession. And how every demon has a personality, has specific traits that they want to manifest through a human body. We can go into all of that with, with greater detail, but here's, here's what I'm getting at. For a person to get to a place where they're schizophrenic, usually there's been several breakages along the line in their thinking. That means you have to be disciplined and harness your thoughts. 
This is why I'm saying it's so important for you to do this because nobody else can, 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 can do this for you. If, if I knew that in my family I had people who had mental problems, mentally ill, and other people mental problems, mentally ill, and it went back four or five generations. Now that I'm a Christian and I have some concept of 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, I'm going to believe and determine that, that all of that is going to stop with me because I, don't, I know the king. That, that's where I'm standing. Now, other people may just say, well, you know, whatever comes, comes. Well, you can believe that if you want to. Or you can take a stand on the word of God and decide that I'm going to trust God's word. I'm in his care and I'm bringing every thought captive. And if, and if, and if that means that for the most part of the day, I've got to keep myself focused and I've got to put a scripture in front of me and I've got to meditate on something. And every hour I've got to find two or three minutes just to think about the Bible. Then you do that to maintain your health. Remember, the scripture says a man who has an unruly spirit is like a city with the walls broken down. Everybody can just come back and forth into it and there's nothing you can do about it. Don't lay there and let the devil fight you. You resist him. Your mind, if it's going to be a prison, let it be a prison for the thoughts of God. You get rid of those things that you can't expel. Can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in the air. And I'm not telling you that you, you're, you're not gonna, you, you, you're not gonna, I'm not saying you're not gonna ever have bad thoughts. I'm not saying that you, you, you're not gonna have carnal thoughts to come to you, but what I am saying, if you start meditating on them, that's entirely on you and me. That don't have anything to do with God. So we have to make the decision to say no. And that will help us preserve our joy. It will. It will. All right, let's pray. Father, we're grateful this evening that your word is true. You have given us some more scriptures that we can stand on. We know that the one that has a merry heart has something working in them like a medicine. God, so we thank you right now for that curing power at work inside of us. You said the joy of the Lord is our strength. Father, we are not weak, but we are strong in you. And in the power of your might, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' mighty name, amen, 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 amen.